Welcome to Horrors to Culture, a digital salon hosted by the Known World Courtesans, where we bring you conversations with interesting gentles around the world. The Known World Courtesans are a free confederation of reenactors who have chosen a pre-1600 sex worker as our persona, along with the patrons, bodyguards, and entourage that may accompany us. As courtesans, we educate about historical sex workers and stand in solidarity with modern sex workers against sexism, misogyny, whorephobia, homophobia, transphobia, racism, classism, and all form other forms of isms. Learn more about our group by visiting knownworldcourtesans.org. Today we have the enchanting Min Suyun Nim of yes. the Verity of Gladenfeld Merid- uh, Meridies. Yes. Nim is right. Nim is is essentially the Korean equivalent of lady, but it's added as like a suffix on the end. Yes, yeah, so it's an honorific. It's the closest I can get to a lady, which means I can't can never become an honorable lady. That's for <laughs> sure. I think there are a lot of the courtesans who feel that way. <laughs> well, well, we're enjoying the evening in my lovely peristylium. My name is Lucrezia Lepida, but all of my friends call me Lepida. And how are you this evening, my friend? I'm pretty good. Work was long, but that's always how it is. And now you get to be done. That's yes. the best part of a yes. long day of work is when it ends. Yep. So what are some of your current projects that you're working on? Um, my biggest thing right now is I'm actually working on hand sewing a Cherubiyoshi dancing girl outfit. Uh, so I'm doing it all by hand. I'm dyeing it myself. Oh, wow. Um, I'm block stamping parts of it. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I come home and I like open my mouth and my significant others just look at me like, Please don't say anything. Please don't add another part of this project <laughs> because it's it's ridiculous. Um, I even had this crazy, well, someone else had this crazy idea of using red thread with mm-hmm. a white silk because that's like a common folklore thing Yeah, to be able to sew so well that you have, you can get away with it basically. And it is... Uh, taking a lot of time (laughs) to make it all look very perfect uh yes um uh, i'm almost scared that i'll get done and i'll be like well i can see all that red everywhere but well hopefully it'll be when you take it in all together it'll look lovely i I think that that's kind of an effect that you don't get until you're really done with it yeah but i'm also uh working on my eastern salon planning everything is starting on that for the year Um, and a lot of small things. I'm doing a lot of incense lately. Some Italian hem stitching. I'm basically doing all the things is what I'm saying. (laughs) Like most, uh, art side people are. They do a little bit of everything all the time. Well, I'm not even supposed to be an art side person, so. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Why not? I'm, I'm just, I'm just a protege. I'm not an apprentice. Uh, well, but you can still like art side. Yeah, that's fair. It's not what I signed up for, though. Fair. So, um, aren't you also working on an illumination project? Um, it's, it's very on a planning phase right now, but I'm trying to start this project, and I'm probably going to invite other people to do it as well, uh, where 
probably every two weeks or so, we choose a different area of the world to represent in the scroll work we do. I'm hoping to uh, contribute to my kingdom's backlog. So there's more, you know, Ottoman, more Persian. Someone mentioned that there wasn't enough Byzantine. Uh, So just trying to get away from having, you know, like the only... uh, Scrolls that are non-European are literally called non-European in our, my kingdom. So that tells you how much they get of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing um, to add to that diversity. So there's just more available out there. And because the more people see it, the more they realize that they're, that those things are options. Like being a courtesan. Yeah. yeah. And there's also a lot of... Not a lot of use of period sources for some of the illumination that's non-European. Yeah. Uh, especially people who are starting out and they're like, oh, I'll just throw a lotus in here and it's Asian. <laughs> uh, but there's there's a lot of period work that's very, very gorgeous that, you know, would definitely look good on a scroll. Yeah. Well, and if you, if there's not enough, like, actually on paper already, which I can't imagine... The um, Persian, at least, has a huge embroidery tradition. You could easily adapt embroidery motifs for scrolls. Yeah, I'm actually looking at a lot of some of the Korean stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm using, basing a lot of it on their uh, Celadon inlay work. Ooh, okay. Um, because, you know, it's it's pretty. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. It's pretty. and <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, it's good enough for me. That's, I think that's good enough for everybody. Yeah. Like, it's pretty, totally counts. It's a fully <laughs> legitimate explanation in and of itself. Yeah, someone someone looked at Celadon in period and said, I'm going to copy that and draw it. Like, I'm oh, not yeah. the first person who came up with that idea. No. Uh, well, I, I think that that's the thing, um, you know, all art forms influence all other art forms within a time period, and they're all influenced by the culture. So that's something that, you know, is definitely, like, ripe for digging into for our modern uh, recreators. Yeah, and there's just a lot we don't realize how much some countries influence others. And yeah, it's quite fascinating. But if you let me get into the subject, we will be here well, all day. Well, that's what we're here for. So <laughs> before, But before we get too, you know, too far into it, what are we drinking tonight? What are we drinking? Um, I am drinking the blood of a monster. <laughs> I don't know what you're drinking, but it it can't beat what I'm drinking. So. It does. It does not. I'm drinking um, a red wine that just said it was sweet, and it is. It's sweet enough that I don't dislike it, but it's not anything fancy. Well, like it doesn't. It doesn't brag about where it's from. So. It's wine, so... <laughs> it is wine. Yeah, it'll do. It tastes do. good. <laughs> yep. But it's not Moscato. I'm branching out. Ah, <laughs> shocking the world. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to drink IPAs right now. They're bad. I hate them. But I guess, you know, once you drink enough IPAs, it's Stockholm Syndrome. What it sounds like to me more than developing a taste it sounds like Stockholm Syndrome to me yeah you just learn to love it to be honest that's how I feel about most of the people and their wine habits but I try not to judge so do you have any patrons you want to give a shout out to um of course you know there's my lady love uh Sophia Berkeley 
Uh, we actually uh, just got done shopping at Fine Fabrics in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And if you've never been there, oh my god, it's amazing. Plan to be there for like several hours, though, because... Oh, heard. Uh, you will be there for a while. But we found this beautiful Turkish fabric. Uh, and, you know, she does the European stuff. I don't. So there's very few things that we can do together. But mm-hmm. the Venetians had a coat that they would wear that was very obviously influenced by the Turkish. Uh-huh. So she's going to make her half of the fabric into that, and I'm going to make mine into an actual caftan. Oh, so, cool. So, so we can match, but not be so matchy that... Yeah. You know, I we, think that's lovely. Yeah. You know, if we ever become Baroness and Baroness... That's our story. I, you know, stole her from Venice or something like that. And <laughs> oh, that that's fun. Um, I also, I can't say their names because I didn't ask them. Because it's been a while since I've seen them. But I do have a couple of patrons in South Downs, a Baron Baroness, who are very, very supportive. And I'm pretty sure if courtesans were a thing... When she was developing her persona, she would have definitely been a courtesan. Um, he would have been a patron no matter what, because that's just the type of person he is. But Yeah. There are a lot of people that we sort of have come out of the woodwork and are like, oh, I tried to do that, but no one would let me. Um, so it's, it's exciting to be able to involve them in, in whatever capacity they uh, can be with their personas that they've already developed. Yeah. And are you currently looking for new patrons? Oh, I'm always looking for someone who will deal with my eccentricities. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Uh, I actually have two new patrons um, oh. since war, but um, I cannot say either one of their names because I haven't uh, gotten permission. But just a little shout out to my new patrons. They know who they are if they're listening. Um, and I'm very excited for all that the future has to hold for both of us. Um, cause I've made some, some good deals, some good connections <laughs> at this war. It was a profitable war. <laughs> I'm just imagining you like looking at guys going like, oh, you're acceptable. You are, you can be my patron, I guess. That, that isn't how it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing it better than me because I just go up to people and go like, hey, you need a courtesan? Cause I need a patron. You know, we're hooking that's, up now. <laughs> that's a perfectly acceptable way to do it. Yeah. I usually just wait until people want something or, like, prevail upon me for my skills or something. And then I'm like, well, I'd be happy to. But what if we made this more formal? <laughs> Let's sign a blood contract right now. <laughs> no, they're not in blood. They're just, you know, they're just contracts. Yeah, they're just in red ink, so. It's fine. It, it feels no good one has to. Let's not ask any question. Let's let's just sign it and move on. <laughs> so, how did you get started in the SCA? Um, so, I got started during college. Uh, during my freshman year, I was sort of an officer for a comic creators association. So, I went to man the booth for their um, fall fair or whatever you call it, where you try to get people to join your club. 
and my friend was manning the booth next to me. And the booth next to me was the university's SCA club. Okay. Uh, and we made a bet there, a deal. She said that she would join my club if I joined hers. That bitch never joined my club. <gasps> but <laughs> I kind of got stuck here. Uh, I think within a, a semester, someone volunteered me to be their uh, treasurer. So I was like, oh, now I got to join this club. Yeah. And the year after that, I went to what some may fondly call it, Gulf NATO. Ah, okay. Um, and you would think after my experience, it was very bad, that I would go from it saying, well, I really, really hate this person now for getting me into this club. Um, but just seeing everyone, like, come together and, you know, <laughs> I guess maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome at that point. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a cult, so... I, yeah, we just don't say the C word too loud. The FBI might come down <laughs> on us. They'll get the ATF to break in because of our massive stockpiles of swords. <laughs> I mean, really, it's it's not that we have swords, it's that we know how to use them. And we know how to make them. Oh, yeah. And we know how to how to hide them really easily, too. True. So, yeah. would you mind sharing your uh, Gulf NATO story? Uh, sure. So, um, as some may know, Gulf NATO happened on Thursday. Uh, Thursday of Gulf Wars. Yes, Thursday of Gulf Wars. And I had the grand plan that I was going to leave on Wednesday night to get to golf. So it's an eight-hour drive. I was supposed to uh, take a nap before I drove, but instead I had to go to work last minute. So by the time I get to that golf NATO actually hits, I have been awake for 36 hours straight. Oh, my. And uh, um, someone actually, uh, I don't know if they saved my life, but they probably saved me from a really bad headache because I'm just asleep during court. Like, I'm just, I'm, my eyes are open, but I'm not really there. Yeah. And the guy just says, look out. It's been 36 hours. I'm, I just look up. I'm like, huh? What's, what's going on? And then I see him just holding up this pole, like, about to hit me and he's like I said look out it's like oh, I think it's time to get out of this area uh so fast forward it's everything is wet everyone is miserable all the tents are damaged all the tents are damaged um I didn't get to do anything at that golf I just went to uh, one class and that was it but for some reason you know, seeing everyone get together and I think there was singing at the Green Dragon. Um, and people just like bringing mattresses over for people to sleep in. I was just like, these are good people. I, yeah. I can, I can maybe like them. Maybe, maybe I'll give them another chance. Uh, so after that, I really just went all in and, and completed the Stockholm Syndrome process. <laughs> I love it. So 
how did you get started as the persona that you have now? So a, a dirty, dirty secret of mine. I was a Norse persona for a long time. For It actually took me two years before I came up with a name. Yeah. And it was Norse. And I had maybe one pair of Norse clothing. Uh-huh. And then someone, you might know her. Her name is uh, Stella Silvestri from South Downs. She okay. starts posting about her Korean persona work, and I'm like, that is pretty. I want to wear that. So I start wearing handbox, and all the while I'm still going by my Norse name. And it, it became basically an intervention at some point. When someone sat me down, I was like, you don't have any Norse garb. You don't have, you have nothing beyond name, but you have all this Korean stuff. You need to, you need to change your name, maybe. And I was like, okay. And then I started getting the courtesan stuff. And that's when I really fell in love with the Korean courtesan. Yeah. And so from there, I was kind of hooked into basically the Asian stuff. There's a lot of it, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Well, all all of the cultures yeah. of the world have a lot to offer. So choosing to go down any of those rabbit holes is something you can spend a lifetime doing. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so, so what inspired you to choose a sex worker persona? Uh, So I actually learned about the courtesans from Sophia and her often. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was like, what are y'all doing? This is, this is quite weird. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, I'm going to support y'all. I'm going to join your little Facebook group and see what it's all about. But it's probably not for me. And I think somewhere along the line, I volunteered to teach a class on Eastern courtesans. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. These people, these women had some power. They really did. Like, some of these women normally couldn't even go outside. And these courtesans are just going along the streets dressed as men, some of them. And I was like, that's some real power there. Yeah. And I like power. <laughs> So I'm going to be a courtesan. I, I I like your honesty about it. But yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a very fun part of being a yeah. Um, And I like the duality of it. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of these Eastern cultures, uh, these women are either a slave status or like a very low tier or somehow outside of the caste system that they're in. But they're still like acting from a point of power like they are the most knowledgeable women they know how to do things men listen to them yeah Uh, they get you know kind of like with the venetian courtesans yes men fall in love with these women they don't get married to these women but they fall in love and that's actually a a sort of a unique set of cultural Mm -hmm. circumstances that um sort of usually, well, often give rise to what we call the rock star courtesan archetype. Yeah. Um, which is what you're talking about with that power. 
and that just entrancing the masses, making people fall in love with you, being incredibly intelligent, um, being able to move about freely and have um, autonomy that other women didn't have. Uh, and, and the specific cultural context that usually leads to that is one where women are a normal, quote unquote, respectable woman is completely controlled and completely hidden away. Um, so you have that in Venice, but you also have that in like Greek city states. You also have that in Persia throughout a big chunk of our time period, um, which I think you might be talking about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and you also have that, um, in uh, certain situations, like it sounds like in Korea, but if that if those circumstances exist, then it's almost inevitable that there's going to have to be a sort of stopgap class of women who perform women's roles because those societies are always really highly gender role oriented. They still need women to perform women's roles when they meet with other men, but those women can't be wives so they have to create a separate class of people yeah and that's sort of that's sort of where the rock star courtesan comes in yeah and i actually uh just finished reading this uh paper um i was talking it was it was all these people who were studying courtesans um for their research Mm -hmm. and they all basically agreed that the courtesan that they were talking about most of them had this strict gender separation in their normal between their normal women and men. Yeah, and I found that quite fascinating. That it just these cultures that you know vary in time period and where they location or just end up doing the same thing. Yeah, well, and there are certain elements in our society today that would like to see our gender roles become stronger again and uh you know that's a a really good i mean we we like to portray these because of the romanticized like the romantic side of the courtesan but that we we do our research we know that the truth is not all good um and those highly stratified gender roles pushing people into anything they don't want to do is never good for people so you know history shows us that while you may get an excellent courtesan culture, it's not necessarily something that's good for culture or humans. I mean, I'm not giving up pants, okay? I'm always going to be wearing pants. I am totally down to give up pants, but I'm glad that we live in a world where we can both feel like we want to feel about it. (laughs) Uh, So tell us more about your courtesan persona. What's their story? Uh, so my courtesan persona is her name is Su Yun, and she grew up in 15th century Korea, and she was born to a gisang. And what you might know know about uh, gisang is that they are the lowest class in Korea, the Chianmen. And so to become a gisang, you're basically either born into it, or you're sold into it. Or you're, uh, you talk to a man and you have to be an, a noble's daughter. <laughs> and they decided it was, that was the best way to get rid of you. Um, so I was raised to be a gisang at a gyobang, which is an educational institution. 
for Gisangs that the government had, uh, because Gisangs were actually slaves of the state. Okay. Uh, they were not slaves to people. The government owned them. Um, but they definitely had this perceived status. Like, they were slaves, but they were often the head of the slave household and told them, you know, what to do. Okay. Uh, they were trained. Uh, there's parts of uh, history where the emperor would demand that they know something. Uh, for example, there's one point where the emperor demands that they know how to make up, do their makeup correctly uh, to please him, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, mine is considered one of the highest ranks of Gisang. I work directly for the main um, the main emperor. Okay. Uh, and there I entertain for foreign dignitaries. Um, and that's how I would know stuff about other Asian cultures is through my interaction with those dignitaries. So I'm an ambassador, you might say. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely an ambassador. Um, uh, something funny that you might like, uh, Gisang actually had kind of a quote-unquote professional stripper name. Because uh, they weren't given a family name. They were given a given name. Mm -hmm. And then they would have a professional Gisang name that they would use with their patrons. And do you have a Gisang name for yourself? It, it is. It's just Suyun. I decide, okay. you know, it's, I'm already asking people to know two different names. I'm not going <laughs> to give them a third one. Um <clears throat> But, You're very kind. I have, like, <laughs> eight names, and half of them are Welsh. Well, uh, wait, maybe I'll come up with another name in the next year or so. <laughs> You're totally allowed to have as many as yeah. you want. No, that's not true. You can only register, I think, five or ten or something, but... Oh, how dare they? I wanted to do, like, 20. I know, right? Yeah. I just want one for every country. I'm, I gotta catch them all. Well, so, medievally, at least in Europe... That would basically be, like, my primary persona, because my main persona, or my courtesan persona is Roman, but um, my Welsh persona, her name is GLaDOS, if I went to a place, like, if I went to Italy in the 12th century, even though they, they're they not speaking, well, they're speaking Italian, but they're also speaking a lot of Latin, they would call me GLaDUSA, and they, they wouldn't give a crap that I would be like, no, my name's GLaDOS, they'd be like, no, GLaDUSA. That would be what they would call me because they would sort of like Latinize my name. And if I went to the Middle East, they would have a version of my name that was their version of my name. So um, having a different name for every country seems pretty period accurate to me. <laughs> and not unreasonable. Not unreasonable even a little. <laughs> so uh, what is your dream? Why do you play? Um. So... You know, part of the reason I stay in the SCA is the community and the safe space it gives me. Um, I play basically to, you know, contribute to that community, you know, try to create a safe space for others. Um, and, you know, encouraging other people to <laughs> make the leap into Eastern personas. You know, yes. it's kind of lonely sometimes. 
being it's so only exciting, Korean. <laughs> I, you're not the only Korean. Um, actually, if she comes next year to Gulf Wars, I will introduce you. We had a Korean queen in Trimeris. Really? Yes. I would I love to meet her. I would love to introduce you to her because she's fantastic. And I think that you guys would enjoy chatting about Korean stuff. Yeah. Um, and she is just amazing. So, um, and her name is Young Me. Young Me. Um, but, uh, so I, I totally understand it being lonely. But I have to say, as someone, um, I was out of the society for 10 or 15 years. And when I came back, I was like, oh, we're doing this now? We're not being inherently racist anymore? Yeah. This is so exciting, you guys. Like, I just, I love it. it and it was something that... Um, you know, I was I was excited to go back and do the dancing and wear the the dresses and, and the stuff I liked. But when I when I discovered that that we were really as a society making progress, um, arguably possibly faster than the rest of America. Yeah, uh, I was just really happy. Like I was just it it made me so proud of VSCA. Um, and then we had inspirational equality, and I was just like, you guys. We're killing this, you know, in context. Um, <laughs> so it, coming back to the SCA and and, be, and seeing that, it was really exciting to me. So I know it's lonely, but I promise you it's not as lonely as it used to be um, when I played when I was, like, 16. Um, when I was 16, people would show up in Asian stuff and people would be like, we don't do that here. Do you know what I mean? So it's way better. It's so much better than it used to be. Yeah, I, there's a, it, it can be, there's a line where you can be a little offensive. Um, like, so I actually have a story, if you don't mind me telling it. Oh, no, no, um, no. I went to an event a, uh, maybe a month ago or so, and uh, someone comes up to me, and I'm used to people assuming I'm Japanese, because, you know, they're next to each other. And so I kindly correct her that I'm I'm Korean, I'm not Japanese. And she's just like, well, they're about the same anyways, all those countries, right? And oh, I just looked yeah. at her like, what did you just say to me? <laughs> right. And so I, I, I'm so shocked that I don't say anything. And then a few, like, maybe an hour later, she calls me Mulan. And I'm just like, oh, hold. Oh, no. Hold my fan because I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> my persona would ca- even think that was offensive. Um, yes. So, it, you know, there are situations where it's still not completely accepted. Well, and- but, you know, that's part of my dream is to correct people and say, you know, you yeah. wouldn't call them all the same just like you wouldn't call England and France the same. And, you know, I'm pretty I, sure an I, English person would kill you if you suggested they were French. People suggest that Wales is the same as England all the time. And let me tell you, <laughs> I fight people about that on the regs. So I think that that's completely justified. And also, like, this is part of the thing. Like, people sometimes talk about cultural appropriation with um, white people playing non-white personas. Um, and you are someone who is white. You're not Asian. Yeah. But I don't, I personally don't have a problem with it because... It's part of the process of of making the SCA a more inclusive space. Like you have to show up as a white person in Korean garb and make and correct that other I'm assuming white person um, yeah. who said those stupid things 
Um, and it would be a lot to ask of, of Asian people to come and, and do all that work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they so probably can, wouldn't even correct them. No, because they would feel the weight of racism outside the game, too. Like, you experience racism within the game because of things you've chosen, which means that you have a lot more spoons to do the correcting and to do the educating than someone who comes to the game already dealing with that. Yeah. So, and and if, it, if there hadn't been white people who started portraying non-white personas, like, back when I was 16, we wouldn't have what we have now. So I think that there's reasonable points on all sides to be made, but I think that, you know, it's not conclusive. There's definitely a dialogue um, about the the things that, because there are some clear benefits. And there are a lot of people who know 300, 800, 1,000% more about non-white cultures than they ever would have if a white person hadn't been interested enough in that non-white culture to bring it to the SCA. Yeah. Um, because it is in many ways, a very white oriented organization. Um, it's becoming less so, but that's because we've made the space by having white people do non-white cultures. Like basically the, that space yeah. wouldn't have existed without that sort of starting point. Yeah. I mean, it basically, uh, you know, I can imagine it being sort of, scary to go in and go like i have to do a european but i, right. I want to honor my culture and right you know, if you well, are the only one doing it then that, it that's tough that, it was something that i kind of had to click for me when i was i was hearing about what um the sca was like in japan um and i was expecting that in in sca japan there would be lots of people with japanese personas they're not and I though was, they're not yeah. there. It's actually more European than other places because specifically if people of color, and this is true for many people of color in the society, and of course it's not universal, but many people of color in the society are specifically drawn to being a European persona, which is why they bothered to join the SCA. People who are people of color who are interested in exploring their own heritage have other avenues to do that. Like, you have to be a person who wants to come be part of this organization that's perceived from outside as being exclusively for white people and European personas. So we have to change that view from outside before people who are of different non-white cultures and have those backgrounds are going to be like, hey, I could share my culture with these crazy white people. <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. But I've always thought it was just inherently racist. Like, I, I can't even imagine trying to sell that to someone, like, the back-in-the-day mentality. Like, oh, yeah, you should join my club. We reenact history. Oh, but not your history. Just mine. Not your just mine. I can't, e I can't even imagine. Like, I just can't even imagine trying to make that sale to someone. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Words. <laughs> that would not... Uh end in a pleasant conversation that's for sure i mean i think that anyone who did have it end in a pleasant ending that's on the non-white person being incredibly generous so we're here to talk about eastern courtesans today if you hadn't noticed <laughs> if you hadn't noticed <laughs> which is really exciting um for above aforementioned reasons um i am so excited that our society is becoming more diverse and likewise, I'm really excited with the growing diversity in our um, Known World Courtesans Guild and how exciting it is to just be able to support that um, 
even though I myself don't have uh, a non-traditional, or uh, they're all traditional, but I don't have a non-European persona. I'm hopelessly Roman and and European. Oh, we can change that. (laughs) I mean, okay, I have a kimono, and I'm putting together a whole Japanese outfit, and I'm all about having, like, an outfit from lots of different cultures. But I really like the medieval European medicine stuff. So I don't know how far I'll get from that persona-wise. But Honestly, if you look into it, you'll probably find that a lot of those things are shared in Eastern. They're shared in in Middle Eastern. Because, in fact, like, all the stuff got thought up by Greeks and Romans. And then um, it was basically, like, Muslim countries and Middle Eastern countries that kept those things going. While Europe was really busy not having running water. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It was a big problem for a while. Well, like, looking at uh, the dyeing stuff I'm looking into right now. um, So I'm looking at both matter and sap and wood. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, I have these period resources that show me that they use this in Heian-era Japan. And I was like, um... I wonder if Herofin's persona would also be using this. And, you know, he's whatever he is, Norse. He's Norse. <laughs> um, and uh, they used both, actually. Yep. And uh, that was very fascinating to me to know that, like, somehow both of them, uh, you know, basically halfway across the world are using these things for the exact same thing. Um, oh, yeah. And using probably the same exact methods, too. I, um, we did an Iron Chef cooking competition, and our challenge ingredient for it was um, gall and gall, because it is grown in Thailand, so it's used fresh in all kinds of Asian dishes, but then it was dried and shipped across the Silk Road, and was a super popular common spice in European dishes, but it would be dried then. So, I, it was, we could choose one ingredient, and, and be including, you know, a huge portion of the world's recipes that would be available to use with this. Or you could do something that use something similar to gal and gal and like mix it up. Like, oh, I put this gal and gal in this Indian food, or I think gal and gal is an Indian food. But anyways, <laughs> I don't know anything about food. My point is that, that ingredient is available everywhere, and um, there's a lot more of that than people really think about. I mean, the Silk Road was a pretty global thing as far as the old world quote-unquote, was concerned. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, going back to the whole Eastern persona thing, if there weren't people doing that, then we'd be losing a whole part of, you know, what made Europe, Europe. Absolutely. they're definitely affected by that Silk Road. I mean, that's money right there, and you you always follow the money. Yeah, and, well, and there's a lot of things um, that are very, like, um, Sultry, the the pig nose sultry, the plucked sultry, that is really intensely part of, like, 13th century music, like, base of it, is completely um, an Asian instrument. It's like a a Western version of an Asian instrument. Like, they saw people playing, like, koto and other, like, lap plucked instruments, and they basically, like, we could build that. And so, without contact with Asia, um, that would never have been there. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. There's a ton of things that are incredibly like all the medieval spices that we think of as being incredibly European medieval. They all come from Asia. So yeah, I, and I think it would be Florida leaves were originally Persian. That's really, yeah, I didn't know that. 
my Laurel dug that up. She had to fight some people about it. It was, it was rough. Yeah, I think it would be like a kind of cool um, ANS project to do where, you know, you're given a description, a description of something and it's like Asian or whatever. And using your experience from your culture, you have to make it and see what Mm. they come up with. I think that'd just be interesting. That would be fun. Welcome to Whores of History with Mistress Magdalena La Sanguini. Welcome once again to Whores of History. I am Mistress Magdalena La Sanguini of the Kingdom of Atlantia. When we think of the pinnacle of Italian courtesans, the most famous, the most beloved, the richest, the most beautiful, the one with the most storied life, we think of Veronica Franco. We would be wrong. Thanks, Hollywood. The courtesan that embraced all that we've come to love about these rock star prostitutes is the Great Imperia. Imperia Conati was born in Rome, August 3rd, 1481. Her mother was also a courtesan, but a minor sort. Her father may have been Paris de Grasses, master of ceremonies to Pope Julius II. She called herself both Imperia Conati and Imperia de Paris. Her mother, Diana, eventually married, a much older man, a member of the Sistine Choir. Together, Diana and her husband built two houses along the Via Recta, a new and fashionable street in Rome. How did they manage this feat? In two short years, no less? The answer, of course, was her daughter, Imperia, who at 17 already had among her patrons Giacomo Sodoletto and Agostino Chigi, the wealthiest banker in Rome. Imperia's beauty was legendary, both during her short life and long after. What did she look like? Poets attempted to capture it in sonnets and epigrams. Some mentioned her broad white brow, crowned with golden hair. Others said her neck was long and her breasts were ample and delicious. But it's not a mystery, because among her admirers was one of the greatest painters of the Renaissance, Raphael. The painter considered her the perfect representation of all that is beautiful in women. Art historians identify her as Sappho and Calliope in the fresco Parnassus, and also Galatea and Psyche in the frescoes in the Villa Farnesina. If these depictions are accurate, she was the epitome of Italian beauty of her time. Fair-skinned, blonde, with a sweet round face and a graceful, ample body. Let me share a story that allows the tiniest peek into her life and Rome at the beginning of the 16th century. In 1506, a Mantuan ambassador reported in one of his dispatches, a Venetian named Giacomo Stella was murdered in Rome. It was not the work of an ordinary thief, but a hired assassin, paid to do the job by Alberto Bacuto, one of the secretaries of the Vatican Chancery. The reason for the homicide, quote, was due to no other cause but jealousy over the courtesan called Imperia. However, he opened, 
I do not think that our lord will be too angry with her about it, and probably the courtesan will get off lightly, mainly because she is very well known, owing to the favor she enjoys among certain cardinals whom one cannot mention. Imperia enjoyed a short stay in the house of the governor of Rome, more as a guest than a prisoner, from June until August 1506. The matter was quickly forgotten, and she regained her liberty. Also that year, Matteo Bandello wrote a novella featuring Imperia. In it, he expressed how greatly impressed he was with her lodgings, saying that judging from the number of servants and the luxuriousness of the furnishings and fabrics, any stranger would think a princess lived there. In the novello, he goes on to tell the story of a day when her patron, Angelo del Buflo, brought the Spanish ambassador Enrique de Toledo to visit her. She came to the door to greet them herself, and when she brought them through the suite of rooms to her boudoir, the ambassador was astonished at both her beauty and the luxury and style in which she lived, that he stayed talking to her for some time. After a while, however, he felt the need to spit, and turning to one of his servants, he spat in the man's face, saying, "'Don't be upset, because here there's nothing uglier than your face.'" Finally. At the peak of her fame and power, Imperia chose to build her dream house along with a vineyard. These are the luxuries that an all Italian courtesans aspire to. On March 13, 1511, she entered into a contract with Lord Aeneas Piccolomini of Siena. In exchange for leasing land from her, he would build her a house, of which she was to have use of for the rest of her life. At her death, Aeneas was to gain ownership of the house, but her daughter, Lucrezia, could not be made to leave without a payment of 300 ducats. Now that her living arrangements were secured, she used her funds to purchase a vigna for 117 ducats along the old Appian Way. No doubt this would have become a pleasure garden for her and her clients. But, alas, Imperia's time was short. In August 1512, Imperia's heart was broken, and nothing... <laughs> Not her child, her great wealth, or her other patrons could soothe her pain. One of her first lovers, Angelo del Buffalo, informed her that his love for her had come to an end. In an excess of despair, she poisoned herself. She lingered a few days, just enough time to write her will, and then she passed. Her end made a profound impression on Rome. Biagio Pelle wrote... The gods gave Rome two great gifts. Mars gave her the empire and Venus, Imperia. Fortune robbed her of the empire and death of Imperia. The empire was the light of our fathers, but to Imperia we lost our hearts. Imperia was buried in St. Gregorio of the Coulion in a tomb paid for by Agostino Chigi. The inscription? Imperia, a Roman courtesan, who was worthy of her name. Her form was of beauty rare among mankind. She lived 31 years and 12 days, and died in 1512 on August 15th. So this year, at Pensac, on August 3rd, it will be the 538th anniversary of her birth.
Let us remember the great Imperia and pour a blessing in her honor. Her power and fame should be undiminished by time. She bloomed in the cracks of society, a rare flower so extraordinary that the known world courtesan should carry her name into the future. caveat you wanted to give before we get started yes um i just wanted to say before we start this topic um this is a very very broad topic um i'm going to forget something it's going to happen it's not that i don't love you shout out to the courtesan persona i forget um <laughs> it's just that if we were go over to go over everything in detail we would be here for a while and while i'm sure our listeners love my voice. You can't afford me. <laughs> love it. So, Eastern courtesans. Um, how are how for the purpose of our discussion today? How do you want to? How are we defining Eastern? Um, so, basically, the Asian part of modern Turkey, uh, East. So this would include the Middle East, uh, modern-day Russia, etc., etc. I will be including in our notes a map of the regions of the East. Um, Even within the SCA, some people include Egypt and North Africa into this. Um, I'm not going to go into that because I'm going to let someone else do Egypt and Morocco because... Those are also very fascinating, and I would not do do justice. All right. So um, you have some general guidelines that you suggest for researching the East. Um, So I would think the biggest thing is using the term medieval. Um, It just doesn't work out like you think it's going to work out. If you look up medieval Japan... You might get something that's period, or you might get something that's completely not period. Um, if you're lucky, it'll tell you the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of websites won't even do that. They'll just say medieval Japan. Um, so you're losing a lot of this information in this. Uh, better terms might be feudal, feudal, or just using the era that you're specifically interested in. Uh, yeah. When I'm beginning a project into a specific culture, I'll actually look into the eras and dynasties first, uh, choose which ones I think I might be interested in based on the time period, and mm-hmm. then go from there. And that'll just 
come up with a lot better searches for you than if you were to use the term medieval. It's just a... Well, and people on the internet yeah. don't know what medieval, ancient, classic, or vintage, what any of those terms really mean. Yeah. And it's sort of a pet peeve of mine, so... Yeah. That's very good advice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just uh, probably a vestige of using uh, European terms doesn't quite fit into the right. Eastern research. Well, the, those terms are inherently yeah. defined by the idea that history only includes the Western world. So, of course, they're not going to apply to anyone else. They were never meant to. And at this point, we're just sort of, like, trying to, like, jam other things in there for terms that were never meant to apply to anything else. Yeah. Um, even while we move beyond that narrow definition. So. Yeah. So, I would just really stress to not use the term medieval. Um, yeah. There's also, what you could do is there are countries, you know, Japan isn't Japan in Japan. It's Nippon. Okay. So sometimes bring, using their word for their country will bring up different results. So if you're looking up Japanese kimono, you could put Nippon kimono. Mm-hmm. And that will, it might not give you better results, but it'll give you different results. Okay. And it might not give you results in English, but that's the risk you but take. Google Translate is amazing. It, it is an amazing thing. Um, another really, really big thing is it's very, very important to check twice. Um, a lot of things that we just take for granted as being period is not really period at all. Um, the big thing would be the Middle Eastern tribal style. Um, which didn't even come up until the 20th century. Yep. Um, so just everything that you think of that you're like, oh, they totally, I, I watched this docudrama and they had this. Right. Or this is what I think of when I think uh, feudal Japan, they have this. You should check before you, you know, make a kimono and <laughs> suddenly yeah. realize that it's totally wrong. There and there, um, that's something that used to be something that we would have to really push on with European stuff as well. So I feel like, you know, it's just part of the process of slowly, like, catching up the academic work with the, you know, the fun side of it. Um, but people used to rely a lot on sort of like 19th century folk costumes as references for actual historical clothing, and they're just not. And they're not any more accurate in other parts of the world than they are in Europe. Yeah. So. Um, there is also a real... So using a period source that is not from that culture can give you some insight in how a culture views another culture. And how, let's say if you want to look at how Italy thought of the Turkish, you might want to use that. Um, but they're not going to understand things the way that um, someone from that culture would. Uh, yeah, so, and yeah. they may have a strange interpretation and they may have a different understanding of why yeah. they're doing things. Um, it's like, if we take, for example, a lot of courtesan stuff was outright banned mm-hmm. in a lot of Eastern countries when colonialism happened. This is out of period, obviously. Um, yeah. Because, you know, they see it as straight prostitution and, you know, 
we're unsure if it was really just straight prostitution or if it was something else, but we don't know because that's what they brought. Their understanding of it was this. Right. So. Well, and not that there's anything wrong with, with prostitution. No, not at all. Un- unvarnished, un- yeah. unguarnished prostitution. But definitely people with a lack of understanding of the culture they'll de- they're dealing with and, you know, some ridiculous Victorian prudery are going to just be like, they're all whores. Yes. Um, it's sort of like... Um, George Washington went to New York City and he said every that all the women there were whores, but that was because George Washington, where he was from in rural Virginia, women didn't go out unescorted. And so he basically, when he went to New York City, he thought every woman that didn't have a man with it, with her was a prostitute. Well, no, sir, that's not the case. But he certainly doesn't understand how New York City functions even, you know, back in the day enough to know that a lady's got to get her shit done in the the fastest city in the world. Well, what I find uh, kind of fascinating is we have this, these two different narratives when it comes to a lot of the Eastern courtesans. Um, And one is that coming from European narrative, like these are all, you know, they just have sex for money and stuff like that. And then you get this pushback from the Eastern country saying, oh no, they were... They were entertainers like they they weren't those people. And, you know, as right. people, you know, we're against the hierarchy. Um, well, we're for the hierarchy as it should be, well, as in a government run by prostitutes. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. With the with the um, the smartest woman on top. <laughs> the smartest woman on top writing Aristotle. Yes. There you go. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Um, but you you don't know anymore because it's been so twisted by these two narratives kind of right. combating each other. Well, Julius Caesar said that the Celts were, would just, like, fuck each other out of nowhere. Like, they would just, like, be like, hey, dude, and suck each other's cocks. And we don't really know if that's true or not. Uh, this is coming from Julius Caesar, though. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think so. So who the... Fuck knows. <laughs> I the mean, context just makes it more confusing. I, I don't know what he's been getting up to, but I'm sure that he was doing some of that himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, who is he to judge? <laughs> Romans. Um, and then I think the last general guideline is assuming a culture has not changed in a long time, that they're slow to change. Um, it is true that a lot of these Eastern countries have an or a bigger oral tradition than some of the European countries, but that doesn't mean they didn't change. Um, yeah. A what you would what you would buy from India today for an outfit is probably not going to be period. Just like if you were to buy Liebenhosen from Germany, it's not period. Right. Um, and assuming. That it is. Just like just if you go to a Ren Fair and you buy the standard <laughs> Ren Fair yes. outfit, that is also not period. Are, are you telling me that little dragons that ride your shoulders are not period? Oh, no, the little <laughs> dragons are fine. I was talking about the corsets. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I need my, I need my <laughs> little dragon to ride around with me. <laughs> That's totally fine. So we, uh, we're going to get started with the Near East. 
And I love that you are going to go through this and, and actually use some of the, the different historical words for these places, because that's something that is, it can be a little confusing when you're first getting started with historical research for an area outside of what um, our Western-oriented education has prepared us for. Um, so the Near East is basically composed of the Levant, uh, which is modern-day Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel-Palestine. Okay. Um, Anatolia, which is Asian Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Um, as I said earlier, some people put North Africa, such as Morocco, in there. Uh, that changes even within the SCA. Like, I've seen it, some SCA blogs go, oh, North Africa is not part of the Near East. And then I've seen some say, it totally is. Look at these cultures. They're so alike. Um, yeah. And it's kind of the same vein. They'll actually, some of them uh, will put European parts of the Ottoman Empire into the Near East, okay. like the Balkans and Istanbul. Which is Constantinople. Yeah. Well, no. It's Istanbul. It's Constantinople. No. I don't believe you. <laughs> oh, love it. So what are some of the myths about the Near East? Um, I mean, the big thing is that uh, a lot of people assume all Near Easterners are, for one, Muslim. Uh, that's not true at all. Um, and, you know, what we think of as Muslim, like modern day Muslim is quite different from what practicing Muslims of those days would believe. Yes. Um, like much like uh, Catholicism or, well, Christianity in the early parts and then later Catholicism versus uh, Byzantine, right? There's only one religion because there. this is pre a lot of the schisms that we're familiar with from a modern perspective. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the big thing is a lot of people will say Turkish mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll, I'll even say Turkish. Um, Basically, in your mind, go ahead and translate that to Ottoman. Okay. Because mostly during period, Turkish is Ottoman. Okay. Um, However, the Ottoman Empire, a lot of people will say that, you know, they're everywhere. And, you know, just because the Ottoman took over a country didn't mean that country actually you know, accepted Ottoman culture. Like, they they were yeah. actually, the Ottoman Empire really didn't care as long as they paid taxes. Much like the Romans. Um, and I could approve that. Proof of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we're going to be taking over, I think that's the most decent way to do it. <laughs> Not that I really approve of the taking over. So what are some of the courtesans and sex workers from the Near East? Um, so you, we uh, have talked a lot about courtesans from this area uh, in other podcast episodes, so I'm going to be very brief about this one. Um, Of course, uh, courtesans may be part of a harem, uh, but you also have these Abbasid slave singers, uh, and this is more pre-Islamic Arabia. Mm -hmm. And these women, uh, people... People would go out of their way to buy pretty women or girls and teach them to be slave singers because they were just that more profitable. 
Um, something that some people who might be interested in that area might want to look into Abbasid slave singers, uh, because for a lot of those, a lot of those years, uh, you couldn't be a slave if you were Muslim. So, and they would get people from all over the world, basically, to be their slaves. So, if you wanted to be an Ethiopian persona that just happened to be captured by this country and made into a slave, you can do that. You can basically do two personas at once. Ah, um, that's very interesting. And they were, it was very broad. Like, they took people from everywhere. They're kind of greedy. That, you know... A lot of the, like, the Romans were like that. That's yeah. the main other, like, large empire that I can think of that really, like, stretched over and, like, took over. But they were like, listen, if you just let us build you a forum so that you can, like, we can do our business in a forum because that's how we do it, we don't really care. Just pay your taxes and you can do anything else. And people were like, wait, you're going to build us stuff? I mean, sure, build us all the things you want to build us. But they would continue to use those things in, like, a way that was... um native to their culture. Like, they really didn't, um, they would, you know, they'd be like, oh, Latin, we'll take a language that we can use to communicate to other people for trade. Um, and they were like, sure, we'll take your free buildings and stuff. Yeah. But they, but they really didn't actually Romanize. Like, people talk about cultures Romanizing, like it was this big monumental force, and after it passed over an area, everyone was like, togas and tunicas. But it's just, it's not that simple. (laughs) It's not that simple. And, every you know, wars or cultural ch- exchanges and all those things. So I don't know. Remember, I got on a tangent, but I guess the wine is working. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Southeast Asia. Uh, so this would uh, mostly be India, Pakistan and Thailand. Okay. And do you know any of the um, historical names that they use to refer to themselves or? Um, no, no is Okay. So I will say one thing about India for sure is that for a long, long, long time, they were city states upon city states upon city states. So a little bit more like we're used to thinking about Greece back in the yeah. Athens versus Sparta um, time period. There, You can get some very specific like time periods and cultures by looking up these city states. Uh, if you want, I can... Um, I can link my uh, timeline for different eras on the notes. That would be awesome. Um, and so India went through through very different names. Uh, yeah, let's just say that the book I read for her, it was it was it was a doozy. <laughs> About that whole book was and so and so in the year thirteen thirty nine took over this mountain range and took over from. This person, and uh, two years later, someone took over from that person, and uh, right. So, um, uh, well, and uh, I was when I was doing my yoga project. I swear it took me a month of research just to figure out what to call, like what the what the yogi I was theoretically studying, the hypothetical yogi, yeah. would have called their own culture. Yeah, it was just a month of figuring that out, and it was it was. I don't, and the word I came across, like, I was like, I've never seen it in any other context. So just to tell you all how much you don't know about the history of India, practically everything. <laughs> it, it's a doozy. I, I will say that there's definitely a little bit of a history of having a South versus North India. Yes. Um, 
but it you know it wasn't the same people running it and then sometimes there were like three in the south three kingdoms in the south and five in the north and yeah so well and the north and south of india have very different um climates and um plant life and things like that like they're they're very different you know um sort of landscapes and so they have different needs and different cultural things that have developed because of that yeah. um, when it comes to pakistan and thailand i'm not sure um i'm going to say that they probably were the same uh that okay. region of the of the world just tended not to get their stuff together or you know they're right next to china and china has an issue with being a little too greedy. They like to take over places yep, for some reason. Yep. And um, so that might be an issue. That's an issue for Vietnam, actually, is there's a lot of time periods where it's like, and this year, uh, China took over again. Oh, and we, yeah. we spent the next 50 years trying to get away from them. And So Vietnam is like the Ireland of Asia? Like, they're just constantly getting invaded? Oh, yeah. They're, they're just like... Okay. Please, China, give us, like... Give us a break. Give us, like, two years of independence. Just two. Yeah. So what are some myths about Southeast Asian personas or people? Um, You know, going back to religion, the whole they're all Hindu thing. Uh, For one, Hinduism can be very, very different. Uh, You know, you would have towns that would have a god that they worship, like a town deity that they would have uh, so depending on the area that they were in it was could be very different from a different area even if they were called hindu um there's also a lot of different other religions i rarely see anyone mention jainism and jainism has been around for a long long time yes um and jainism has changed a lot too um if i remember correctly they actually had a point where they weren't allowed to eat insects or anything like that. Like, and they weren't allowed to own land. Yeah. They were, they were much more strict than they are now. Yeah. Um, And they would, yeah, yeah. very much so. Uh, Cows weren't always considered a sacred meat. Uh, I read about this um, kingdom in India where the king was vegetarian but he, everyone loved him because he didn't make everyone else be vegetarian. Uh, uh, but he still had a sacred meat list. Uh, cows weren't on that list. So that's just like that's something that a lot of people associate with India's cows being a yeah. sacred meat. But that wasn't always a thing. And depending well, on where Muslims. you are, yeah, there are Muslims, and there are Buddhists. They're they're definitely Buddhists. Uh, so you have so, some Confucianism, but not a lot. Okay. As you would see in China and East Asia. Yeah. There's just a lot more going on in all those cultures that we've we've really been taught about. Yeah. it it I could see why, because it is very convoluted. Right. Um, but it's still, it's, it makes it interesting to dig into. Um, yes. If you're, if that's something that is is a try is uh is interesting to you um so what are some of the courtesans from southeast asia uh my favorite one is uh one called nagarvadu and this translates to bride of the city 
I always thought this one was interesting because the city would have a contest uh, for the young unmarried women. uh, And the best dancer would basically become an entertainer. And it was so expensive to get a night with her to have her entertain you that like only the richest people could get her for the night. That sounds fun. And uh, what I find interesting about that is a lot of uh, people and researchers will say that Bollywood, their form of dancing is probably Mm -hmm. directly came from the Nagarvadu's style of dancing. So if you really like Bollywood, maybe you should check out the Nagarvadu. I really like Bollywood. Who doesn't like Bollywood? I mean, people that haven't seen it yet, maybe? Well, there's a difference between, like, Bollywood that takes itself seriously and Bollywood that doesn't take itself seriously. It's like cheesy 80s films. Yeah. I I really like the romance ones that do take themselves pretty seriously, <laughs> but that's uh, that's me. I love, like, over-the-top crazy mm-hmm. romance. Um. Another one that I like a lot is Devadasi. Uh, and going back to the whole South versus North India, they had a different name in the North. Um, okay. But the Devadasi were uh, pr- uh, temple dancers. And, you know, they just happen to have sex on the side, but, you know. Um, if you're one of those uh, courtesans who want to explore the whole religion religious courtesan that is a a good way to go yeah and it's i mean that's really interesting to me um as someone who is more into the roman sex workers because that was something like that was very important and a a very big part of their culture were were sacred prostitutes so yeah um it's interesting you know when there are other cultures that are a little bit more modern that still have some of that so and the the devadasi uh some of them would get so rich from their patrons that they could afford land and, like, be quite well off. Nice. And they had a ranking system, and one of their ranking systems included, you know, whether or not you were making enough to make bank. I love it. I love it. So you have um, a type listed here that's not period. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, it's got a twaif. Um, and that's just the first thing that you'll see if you look up um, Indian courtesan. Okay. Uh, they're just not period at all. Just outside. I think they're 17th century. Okay. Um, maybe 18th. So, East Asia. East Asia. My favorite. We're here. This is the main <laughs> of it. I'm kidding. We're at the end of the Silk Road now. Yeah. Where the silk comes from. Yes, exactly. Um, this is, this is uh, Japan, China, Korea. Um, I personally put Vietnam in here, uh, though some people put Vietnam in the Southeast Asia category okay. with India. Um, and that goes on personal basis. Basically, people will change based on how they feel about Vietnam that day. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, going back to my story from earlier, 
think the biggest myth is that Japan, China, Korea, Vietnam are all the same. And they're they're just not. Don't they're don't really even not. don't even go there. Don't, yeah, it's don't call it's me. It's basically Milan. only racism that allows people to think that. Yeah. So just don't. Like let it go. It's a racist misconception. Yes. <laughs> um I think what I personally see a lot um, and I see this mostly when people are doing, going to a Japanese-themed event. And, you know, I'm all for do SCA your way. If you're not going to get into these personas, you don't have to do this research. Um, but, you know, you can't just go online and look up kimono or hanbok and from Japan or Korea and expect to get a period piece of clothing. Yeah, because um, of that folk clothing, yes. folk outfits yeah. thing going on. I mean, if you even look for tr- like clothing that's tagged traditional, most of it will be from the Edo period or... Yeah, you know, which is like roughly Victorian. Yes. that's And that was the thing. I was, I was doing research to get clothing for a Japanese uh, ensemble, and... Uh, I did end up getting something that is a, not a period kimono I got. It's a 1920s kimono um, because it was an issue of budget and things like that. Um, but uh, basically what I learned is our entire idea of like what medieval Japanese clothes are is just Victorian clothes. Um, which I that was when I like kind of put it together. I was like, whoa, it's all just because like the Welsh um, Victorian folk costume the Polish Victorian folk costume, you know what I'm thinking of? Like, when I was younger, people really did act like those were legitimate Welsh medieval outfits or Polish medieval outfits. And so I was just really struck. I was like, wow, it's that same trap of the Victorian folk costume, once again. Yeah. (laughs) Victorians basically decided that the way they saw the world was the way the world had always been. And they were pretty incorrect about that. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said earlier, SCA your way, if you're just going to a Japanese event and, you know, want to fit in, you know, get that kimono, but don't come up to me and expect me to, don't come up and ask my opinion and expect me to be like anything else besides, oh, honey, yeah, you, you would be, you you are quite stake a scandalous today. Look at you. You have two layers what is going on here yeah you need at least five what's yeah what what is this what is this pillow thing on your back why is why is your obi so thick um that's just yes and that that and that that's like i ultimately decided to go um post period because my accumulating you know an outfit for each culture is about having something really pretty to wear to accompany a patron at a variously cultured event. So I went for style over substance. I won't lie. <laughs> Fully aware. <laughs> but um, I, I know, like, if someone says, you know that kimono, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know. The sleeves are way too long. And let me just tell you. <laughs> you know, so you don't have to, you don't have to make everything the most period possible. But um, it's good to know the difference. Yeah. And, you know, if you were really, like, struck for money and, don't know how to sew or something. There, there are ways to take what you, this 
quote traditional kimono is and make it more period like it won't yeah, be exactly the whole, same but i saw a whole really cool tutorial that was basically about how to take a modern kimono and turn it into um a period like not exactly, you know, but basically something that will look like a period kimono, or which I don't remember if it's actually called that or not, but it's a robe. Um, because the sleeves are much shorter. Like, what we think of as, like, we think of as the tiny sleeves as being a modern adaptation, but they also preceded the big, giant Victorian-era sleeves as well. Yeah, and and it depends on, like, what era you're interested in, like... Uh, and how wealthy you are, yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, one thing I love about Japanese clothes, though, okay, totally, totally tangential, but I love um, that for, like, I was just, I was trying to look up something for a Japanese-style veil, and they don't really do veils the same as Europe, and so I was like, what would I do? And I hit across how they, they'll have a whole kimono that they will just put up above their head, like, they'll have another robe, yeah. and they put it on top of their head, and that's, like, a veil. So I was like, oh, I could have, like, a red robe with a big stagmon on the back, yeah. like, go- in gold, and have that be my quote-unquote red veil. Well, you know what I find, I, f- I forgot what it's called, the Studio Ghibli. Uh-huh. Um uh, one of their movies, Princess Mononoke, is in the Muroma- Muromachi period, and they actually did a pretty good job at... So is that, is that, what, so when is Muromachi? Um, that's about the 15th century or so. Really? Because I've seen Princess Mononoke a lot of times. Yeah. And I did not know that it was that, that time period. That's amazing. Um, and the little straw cape piece wearing... In the in the movie, that's period. I I, I have those. I have totally considered doing a princess Mononoke uh, SCA outfit. Like oh my god! Like I looked into it. I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a princess. I don't. If you do that, <laughs> if you do that, I will follow through on my plan to make a historically accurate um, link and and. Um, the princess whose name I Zelda. Forget. I keep thinking of Princess Buttercup. Zelda. But I know that's wrong. Zelda. Yes. Yes. <laughs> princess Zelda. I, I actually saw this person um, found like the three triangles uh, that is associated. The triforce. The, yeah. Is that what it's called? A triforce. Yeah. I think so. I don't think it's called triforce. Maybe. I don't it's know. It's a triforce. I'm bad at geek stuff. Her often's looking at me like, yes, it's a triforce. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, they, they put that all over that, their kimono. Um, nice. and so it was green with white block stamps of that. And it, it looked pretty period. That's awesome. <laughs> it was pretty fun. I love stuff like that. I, the best part of this plan though, I'm going to make historically accurate Zink and Link and Zelda. And then I'm going to be Link and Randy, my six foot four partner will be Princess Zelda. Oh, of course. It's perfect. Because that's how you do it. <laughs> Yeah, no. And he's already he's already said he's down. He agreed literally years ago. No, uh, you, <laughs> you never promise anyone anything because they will remember years later. He he does not understand that yet. We've been dating for a really long time and he still doesn't know. So, yeah. I don't know. But so back on track. There's one final myth about East Asia and I think it's important. Oh. It's very in line with the other myths we've been yeah, talking about. The whole idea that they're all Buddhist. Yes, um, and they're not all Buddhist. Not at all. You know, you have the folk religions, and folk religions pay 
Because Buddhist is sometimes, you could say it's almost inherently um, atheist almost. That it, it kind of works well with having a different religion combined with it that mm-hmm. worships a god or goddess. So a lot of pe- a lot of cultures will keep using their folk religion along mm-hmm. with Buddhism. So that means that even between towns, it's very different. Like in Japan, you have towns that worship uh, a smallpox god or, you know, the, the local waterfall has a... Or a deep... giant rock phallus. Yes. <laughs> um, and then you have Confucianism uh, and Confucianism, both Confucianism and Buddhism changes a lot over years. So you have Neo-Confucianism, which basically came in and uh, ruined a lot of things for courtesans, but... Um, so that's something to think about when you're looking into your persona is you don't have to pick Buddhist or even Confucianism. You can say, well, my character is from this town, so she believes in this god and she's influenced by Buddhism or Confucianism because that's what the emperor says I have to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, emperors would come in and go like, I don't like this. We're doing this now. Quite often. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the courtesans and sex workers from East Asia? Um, so from Vietnam has this really interesting one called Katru, uh, which I think it translates to bamboo uh, money, basically. They were paid in bam- these bamboo things post-period. But um, that's their name if you look back now. Uh, Okay. But what's really interesting about them is that they have a very unique way of singing. And uh, they're considered the 20th most unique vocal singing up there with, like, Mongolian. Oh, okay. Um, Their story is actually very sad because when colonialism happened, uh, they were prohibited in the 1950s. So a lot of that culture uh, has vanished. Um, you know, there's only a few people who actually learn how to do this style of singing now. And it's vanishing. It's quite sad, actually. Yeah, that is yeah. sad. Um, of course, it's, you know, not vanished now, but... Uh, the next thing would be the Chinese Xi uh, singers... Um, I haven't done personally a lot of work on this. This would be probably Boo's area. Boo Fayette. Boo Fayette. She's not just our Boo. She's a a, a, a whole wonderful person called Boo Fayette. Yes. <laughs> well, she can also be my Boo if she if she chose to be. That's true. It would be up that to her. It would be up to her. And, well, and whoever she wanted to yeah. be Boo's with. Um, I did find out from the that actually it was considered quite disgraceful for them to accept straight up money. Ah. Um, and it was quite disgraceful for them to be performing on a stage. Uh, they they would sing in like a little group to people and like one-on-one to someone, but mm-hmm. they were not, they didn't want to be considered actors or stage performers. Okay. And I'm assuming stage performers were really, really, really low class. Um, they were just, yeah. Yeah. Because that's usually how it is. (laughs) They they were very low class. Uh, 
Uh, yeah. Of course, in Korea, we have the saying, which I find them quite fascinating. But um, those, I would say, if you are interested in Korea, um, saying are really nice because a lot of what we know about Korea in period is because of saying. Uh, they influence culture a lot. People, the noble women would base their um, clothing and their makeup and their hair on what the gisang were wearing. Um, yeah, okay. and, that happens. That's pretty common. Yeah. And the gisang were also some of the only women who were allowed to be seen. So, you know, what we have source-wise that's direct enough, it is usually coming from gisang. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what I forgot to mention on here, though, is there's this uh, phenomenon called huareng, spelled H-W-A-R-A-N-G. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it translates to flower boys. And uh, researchers go back and forth on whether or not they were um, having any sex but they were basically uh, lower nobles who were being taught how to do the manly things like lead wars and do calligraphy and stuff. And a lot of them will say, well, they were probably also had a sexual element there. Yeah. So if you're interested in being a male courtesan, maybe you should look into that. Because there's not enough males out there. No, we need more We need males more males. Um, we need more boys for boys and boys for girls yeah. and boys for non-gender binary Yes, I, I will take every, I will take all those things. <laughs> um, and then in Japan, we have the Shirabiyoshi Dancing Girls. Um, okay. I am, per, you know, I'm doing my project on that right now. Um, there's not a lot of information. It's very hard for me. <laughs> Um, sometimes it seems like they were associated with temples, and then sometimes I'm like, no, they were, they were just dancing. Um, what I find fascinating about them is that they actually dressed as men. Uh, they even had a a samurai sword. The fan they used was a male's. They had, every single part of their clothing was male. Interesting. Um, And... A lot of researchers believe that this kind of harkens to the common bisexuality of that era. Uh, Because back then they believed that uh, gay love and straight love was two sides of the same coin. And there were even some who went so far as to say that gay love was the purest form of love. Yep. So uh, some some researchers theorize that they dressed as men to... Kind of go like, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm a woman underneath these clothes, but I can be a man. Like, yeah. I, I can Let's, do the manly thing. The Greeks actually felt that way yeah. very much as well. Like, loving women was weird and, and, and like, strange, but, but loving men was really normal. Pardon. So, what are some of the sex workers um, from the Far East that we may be familiar with that aren't, period? Um. So in Japan, you know, we mentioned India's toy already. In yeah. Japan, we have three that I would keep putting together, which are the Yujo, the Taiyu, or the Oran. 
we know that that's not period because uh, what happened is in 1615, they basically said all these sex workers need to be put in their own little town outside of the town. And uh, these three came up in response to that. So don't even bother. Uh, the second thing would actually be geisha or uh, mikos. Uh, a lot of people will immediately go like, well, geisha are courtesans. And yeah, they are, but they are, they didn't start appearing until the 17th century. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, geisha was a term for male entertainers for uh Starting in the seventeenth, uh, early sixteenth century, so oh, uh, early sixteenth. That means if you're a geisha in period, you're a boy. Yes, and you were probably not what we would think of as a courtesan. You were just a male entertainer. Though I can't say that for sure. I don't have a time machine, but this is one of those things that we do discuss at length sometimes in the study group, and we get really like into the nuts and bolts and. Um, about were these entertainers also sex workers, but also things like, is there a line, like, is a mistress a sex worker? And then in certain cultural situations, is a wife a sex worker? You know? So we get into those things, we debate them. (laughs) If if everyone is a sex worker, everyone's in the courtesan's guild, right? (laughs) It's a cult now. You just created a cult. Congratulations. Oh, it's it's not a cult, honey. It's an empire. <laughs> um, oh, one thing I think you would think is really fascinating. Um, you know, you're interested in the medicine and yeah. stuff like that. The the gisang, uh actually. So because during their time period, you even if you were a doctor or a tailor, and you happen to be male, you couldn't actually go in to see your um, female ill, basically. So they got in the habit of teaching Gisang how to tailor and do medicine because they could go ah. in there and they could talk to the doctor, you know, because they're Gisang, they can talk to him. But they could also mm-hmm. go visit the female and that would, you know, preserve her, you know, whatever she has. Preserve, yeah, or preserve her honor, uh, yeah, or preserve whatever her honor. cultural factor it is that yeah. is makes it so that she's not mm-hmm. able to go and do it on her own. That yeah, and that's an interesting thing um, that we don't often think about with access to medicine is that throughout a lot of our historical time periods that we're talking about, a woman wouldn't be able to be examined by a male doctor. So if you have exclusively male doctors, then the quality of care that women are receiving mm-hmm. is just automatically going to be less. Yeah, like they can't. I, as a woman, if I go to a male doctor now, he will, like, palpate my stomach, he'll feel my throat, he'll listen to me breathe, he'll test my reflexes, like, he'll do all kinds of things that involve touching my body, possibly even touching my body inside my clothing. And those are just things that are not done in a very strong gender roles culture, Um, which is what we're dealing with through a lot of our historical time periods, you know? So, um, another thing to be appreciative of, (laughs) but also another thing to think of, um, with thinking of women um, who did specifically learn medicine, um, Katarina Sforza is a, a one who comes to mind in, in Europe, but who specifically learned medicine so that they could go out and they could 
take care of women because there was not a mechanism by which women would be Mm -hmm. served in the normal process of governance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So actually these, uh, you know, they're trained to do this. And then uh, once they retire, that's what they'll become their main profession is tailoring or uh, being a a female doctor, basically. Of course, you still have to work underneath the male doctor, but I mean, you're the one actually talking and, examining the patient Um, right so so in that case then becoming a courtesan or or being born or being a sex worker would sort of be um part of because like if i was a woman living in that time period and i wanted to be a doctor becoming a sex worker would be a path to becoming a Mm -hmm. doctor that's actually that wouldn't be available otherwise that's uh one of the Pre, uh, things I'm using as an excuse for my persona for doing the Shirobiyoshi dancing girl mm-hmm. outfit and doing all the things for it is saying, well, in period, this this is like a test for me. This is a, you know, showing I, I can tailor and I can tailor pretty well. You know, after I retire, you need to come to me. Don't go to anyone else for your tailoring yeah. stuff. I like that. Yeah. I, it actually reminds me of, um, there are these really beautiful, um, folk dances that, uh, young unmarried women do in, um, the Balkan area. Yeah. And they, there's specifically a part of it where you raise up your knee really like, and okay, lifting your knee does not seem like a slow or seductive motion to a modern American person, let me just say, they're like, lift your knee seductively. And I'm like, what? But they're like, listen. You are wearing a beautifully embroidered skirt that you have been working on all winter, and you just need to make sure the boys see it so that you can get the best one to be your husband. And I'm like, oh, I get it now. So, you know, you just do this little, like, beautiful little lift of your knee. And, you know, you're in your leggings or your jeans or whatever. But if you imagine it, you can just get it in there perfectly. And it kind of reminds me of that. It's like, we got to dance in just the right way to show off the embroidery. (laughs) This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming. No, thank you for having me. Thank you, lovelies, for joining us today for Horse to Culture. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed sharing our salon with you and all this fantastic information about our Eastern courtesans. Uh, make sure you always have a seat in our salon. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite service and give us a five-star rating. It only takes a moment and it helps other people to find us. So if you can, get those algorithms working in our direction. We would be ever so grateful. Call us with your society gossip or questions for your favorite courtesans anytime at 440 4 Whores. We'll be waiting to hear from you and we will share your message uh, on the podcast so that everyone can hear. Uh, you can look for our website at knownworldcourtesans.org. That's K N O W N E W O R L D C O U R T S A N S dot O R G. That's known with an E as in ye oldie English. Uh, you can follow the Known World Courtesans on Twitter at SCA Courtesans. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Facebook as Known World Courtesans. That's with the E. Uh, join us in our Facebook group where we plan every podcast. We absolutely love to chat. You can find us at facebook.com slash group slash W2C podcast. Facebook won't let us use whore in the URL. Uh, so we're W, the number two C podcast. We have a Twitter just for the podcast now, and you can find us at whores to culture. And our Facebook page, if you just like podcast updates, is facebook.com slash W2C podcast. 
You can also support us by becoming our patron on Patreon. Starting at just a dollar a month, you can get rewards like voting on future salon themes, early access to episodes, videos of normal courtesan members in our historical clothing, and at the very tippy top, you can have an entire episode dedicated just to you. Every one of our salons is a labor of love, but with your help, we can get better recording equipment and basic recording equipment to more of our members so we can bring you more voices and more stories. Please support Marginalized Voices in Podcasting today and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash horse to culture. To support modern sex workers worldwide, please visit the Red Umbrella Fund at redumbrellafund.org.
cookie her often? Always want a cookie. You have to say meow. Meow. There you go. 